Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel, as always. And Lucas, I thought our last episode had a pretty good series, but this one is very good, too. Oh, boy. Yeah, we are going to have quite a bit to unpack in this round. As last week, we had a nice six-game series. We may surpass that this round. The New York Yankees are back once again, but they had to fend off a very tough Cleveland team. The Yankees were up by only two and a half games on Labor Day, but then Casey Stengel decided to substitute Billy Martin at second base, and he inserted Gil McDougal at third. And, of course, by that point, Mickey Mantle was emerging as an outfielder star, having fully replaced Joe DiMaggio. And Cleveland was within one and a half games with a little over a week remaining in the season. But the Yankees go 95-59, and and they win the pennant by two games. In addition to replacing DiMaggio, you had three different guys that were lost to service in the military. Bobby Brown, Jerry Coleman, and Tom Morgan all missing from the uh, run this time around and yet the Yankees were still finishing top two in the American League in runs scored they scored 727 runs in this 1952 season hit 129 home runs batted 267 as a team I mean this was still a very impressive group even though they had to reload a little bit we do have to talk about Allie Reynolds having his best season ever 20 and 8, 160 strikeouts, and a Major League League 2.06 ERA. So, you know, we've talked about Aaron several times before in recent episodes, and this is just another reason for him to be listed among the top Yankee pitchers of this dynasty they've got going here. Absolutely. Uh, not a bad season for Vic Rashi either. Another guy that we've talked about a bunch, 16 and 6, a 2.78 ERA. He was second on the team in strikeouts with 127 on the campaign. Moving over to the National League, the Brooklyn Dodgers, they are also being faced with the significant loss because of military service. Don Newcomb, who we highlighted a few episodes back, he gets called into military service, but he is replaced very effectively by National League Rookie of the Year, Joe Black. He has 15 wins and 15 saves, and he gets some support from Carl Erskine, and the Dodgers are four and a half games in front of the Giants, who had to be without the services of Monty Irvin for almost the entire year with a broken ankle. Plus, Willie Mays was called into military service, and Sal Magley had back trouble, which caused the Giants to fade. And it was Hoyt Wilhelm, the knuckleballer, who made it a close race. But that 96-57 Dodgers record was enough for them to win the National League pennant. Yeah, I'm counting five different pitchers that won at least 10 games for the Dodgers in 1952. We mentioned Joe Black and Carl Erskine already. Billy Lowe's went 13-8 and eight through about 187 innings, struck out 115 guys. That was third on the team. Ben Wade went 11-9, a 360 ERA, struck out 118, though he would not play in the series that we are about to cover. As a group, though, this team posted a 353 ERA and struck out 773 batters. That's pretty darn impressive. Also worth noting that Joe Black is not a traditional Major League rookie. He spent many years in the Negro Leagues before this. So while he is an outstanding first-time Major Leaguer, it's not like he hasn't done 
any of this before at a high level. But now he's getting a chance to show what he can do on baseball's biggest stage. And one of his teammates, Billy Lowe's, encouraged the wrath of Dodgers manager Charlie Dreesen before the series. He shouted at his pitcher, the paper says you picked the Yankees to beat us in seven games. To which Lowe's replied, I was misquoted. I picked them in six games. That's good. So... I don't know what Lowe's was thinking when he made that quote, but nonetheless, the Dodgers and the Yankees are back at to bail out for baseball supremacy. Sixth pennant, by the way, for the Dodgers. And this was an interesting decision by Dreesen. Joe Black, who is 28 years old, he was their only outstanding pitcher that year, and he was to take the ball for game one. He admitted afterwards, I was scared to death. And it's interesting to note that uh, this was his 57th appearance of the season, but he only started two games during the regular season. So I can definitely imagine that he was being scared, especially when he's pitching in front of Ford Frick, NL President Warren Giles, Senators Manager Bucky Harris, Phillies Manager Steve O'Neill, NGM Bob Carpenter, and Cardinals owner Fred Tsai, who, by the way, was under federal indictment for evading income taxes during this time. He eventually pleaded no contest and served six months in a federal penitentiary in 1953. So talk about the balls on the Cardinals owner to show his face when he is under criminal investigation. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe he figured he could hide among the uh, 34,861 that were in attendance at Ebbets Field on October 1st, 1952. First pitch, by the way, was thrown out by Russ Dixon, the American Legion Player of the Year, which is an award that has not very produced that many noble major leaguers. Raleigh Fingers was one of them. Dave Magadan was one of them. But other than that, it's not a whole lot to write home about. But let's get into game one. Jackie Robinson homers into lower left field for the Dodgers' first run of the series. McDougald, however, ties the game with a home run to left, and that was before Black struck out the side in an inning. Billy Cox, at one point, he gets caught stealing to end the third inning, and McDougald, at one point, is thrown out at third from left field, and Andy Pafko makes a diving catch of Hank Bauer to end one inning. At one point, Pee Wee singles and then moves to second on a wild pitch from Allie Reynolds, who's starting the game for the Yankees. And Duke Snyder hits a two-run homer over the scoreboard in right center field. You have Gene Woodling pinch hitting for Reynolds in the eighth inning. He leads off with a triple off the center field wall, and that eventually led to a run for the Yankees there. Allie Reynolds departs. After seven innings, Ray Scarborough comes in to pitch the eighth inning. And then Pee Wee Reese hits a home run into the lower left field stands. Black strikes out six, including his final hitter that he faces, Irv Norin. And the Dodgers win this game by a score of 4-2. to two. As Jimmy Powers wrote, Black carried the team on his broad shoulders all year and gave it a great psychological start in the series. And... Black also becomes the first African-American pitcher to win a World Series game. So there's another barrier broken right there. Yeah, very good job. Black on the game finishes allowing two runs, both of them earned on six hits with two walks, six strikeouts. Really, the only blemishes were the home run that he gave up that tied the game in the top of the third, and then that triple off the wall 
with the sack fly immediately following that scored the second Yankee run, but he got support by the aforementioned home runs by Robinson, Snyder, and Reese. So, so far, the big names have showed up for the Dodgers to give them a one nothing series lead. Well, Game 2 does not go so well for the Dodgers, and the bad luck starts before the game even begins. Carl Erskine is the starter, but he climbs a step ladder in the clubhouse to see if it's raining outside, and he falls off the ladder and bangs both his knee and his forehead on a metal radiator. So, already things are going badly, and it's just a Yankees day from there. Game 2 attendees, by the way, are Giants owner Horace Stoneham and White Sox Vice President Chuck Kabisky and GM Frank Trader Lane. By the way, before the game, Robinson, Snyder, and Reese were presented with a huge bat in honor of their Game 1 homers. But when we get to the actions of the Yankees, who have the power here. Mickey Mantle leads off the 6th with a successful drag bunt and eventually gets to 3rd on a wild pitch. Lowe's, whom we mentioned before, he enters the game of relief after Erskine loads the bases. Mantle scores when Gil Hodges drops a double play throw. McDougal successfully bunts to score Woodling. And then Billy Martin hits a three-run homer to left on the first pitch of one of his at-bats. Vic Raschi gives up three hits and strikes out nine, including Carl Ferrillo to end the game. 7-1 is the final score here. So... I mean, just an overall bad day for the Dodgers. I mean, sure, they gave nice, huge bats to three of their stars. It's kind of strange that they would honor someone in the middle of a World Series that hasn't even been decided yet, but, hey, I guess different times. But uh, this was all Yankees, both on and off the field. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, scoring starting, it was actually the Dodgers who took the early lead here, scored one in the bottom of the third off of... Rashi on an RBI single by Roy Campanella. They were able to manufacture a run there. Pee Wee Reese with a one-out single. He would come around to score following a Duke Snyder bunt single. Jackie Robinson bouncing into a fielder's choice that advanced Reese to third on the play. And then Campanella singling him home. Yogi Berra with a sacrifice fly in the top of the fourth gets that run back. Billy Martin gave the Yankees the lead for good in the top of the fifth on an RBI single by Billy Martin. And really, like we mentioned how rough of a game this was. And you you talked about Carl Erskine getting hurt. And you kind of wonder a little bit because he was able to get away with some mistakes early on. The Yankees have not one, but two runners thrown out trying to steal by Roy Campanella. Hank Bauer gets gunned down after singling to lead off the game, and then Phil Rizzuto, after walking the very next batter, you have Mickey Mantle striking out, and with Gene Woodling up, Rizzuto gets gunned down trying to steal. So you have two of those. Top of the second, Yankees led off the inning with a walk. Yogi Berra with a single going first to third, and then Erskine goes strikeout, strikeout, ground out to get out of the threat. And then in the third, again, puts the leadoff man on, walks Vic Rashi, but gets Hank Bauer to bounce into a 6-4-3 double play. So, I mean, he was flirting with danger a little bit there for the first three innings, was able to get away with it, finally runs out of steam there in the fourth as the Yankees able to manufacture that run, score seven unanswered, and even the series up at one game apiece. We go to game three and Yankee Stadium. Eddie Lopat is the pitcher for the Yankees, and he pitches in front of AL President Will Harridge, who is in attendance, and he singles with a full count of two outs to score Hank Bauer for the game's first run. Lucas, what's your favorite fly in this podcast? Hitting pitchers forever. 
And then Carl Ferrello leads off the third inning with a ground rule double on fan interference, which you can see on the World Series film. And you see Pee Wee Reese have a bunt single to move Ferrello over to third. The Dodgers tie the game in that inning eventually. Yogi Berra hits a home run to right field. Eddie Lopat is relieved in the ninth inning. It was tied at one after two and a half. Robinson's uh, sacrifice fly tying the game. But the Dodgers able to string together a few unanswered RBI single by Pee Wee Reese in the top of the fifth. They add another run on Andy Pafko, sacrifice fly in the eighth. The Yankees end up getting one back in the bottom half, Yogi Berra with the home run. But we have maybe the most consequential passed ball in World Series history to date. Andy Pafko up at the plate. Tom Gorman is on the mound having relieved Eddie Lopat here in the top of the ninth trying to keep this a one-run game. At the time, there were runners at first and second. Reese and Robinson were aboard. Reese and Robinson executed a successful double steal. And after Gorman got Roy Campanella to pop out for the second out of the inning with Andy Pafko at the plate, we have a passed ball on Yogi Berra. Both Reese and Robinson are able to come around and score on the play, make it a 5-2 ball game. That's a good thing because pinch hitter Johnny Mize in the bottom of the ninth homers off of Preacher Row that makes it 5-3. to three. Phil Rizzuto and Johnny Sane both flying out to center to end the game and so that's what I'm I'm kind of shocked to actually seeing this and it almost threw me for a loop seeing wait a minute Johnny Sane is pinch hitting for Joe Collins what world are we living in here I wanted to mention something about the official World Series fail about the passed ball by Yogi Berra after we see the two runs in Reese and Robinson score you can actually see Barra still looking for the ball near the backstop. And then the frame pauses. You see the ball, I think, circled and arrow pointing it out. And the film's narrator says, here it is, Yogi. That's outstanding. Trolling in 1952 is great. And now I went and I pulled up the 1952 numbers. Johnny Sane in 1952 hit 268 with one home run, drove in 14. So I guess actually not the worst move that you would think of in that scenario by comparison Joe Collins though hitting 280 as a regular on the campaign 18 homers 59 runs batted in now you have the righty lefty matchup there so maybe that was the thought process but it's almost unthinkable to pinch hit for a position player with a pitcher in today's game of course, Dreesen afterwards gave the credit for this win to Jackie Robinson, saying, Legs won it for us. We stole the game right out from under them with our base running. Now, to be fair, Bear might have been crossed up because the ball appeared to carry him off of his leg, but nonetheless, probably a moment that embarrassed Bear for the rest of his days, even though we know what the outcome of this is. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he'll get over it. Game four. Joe Black gets the start once more. And in the very first inning, Billy Martin trips and throws wildly, which allows P.D. Reese to advance from first to third. But Robinson and Campanella strike out to end the threat. Johnny Mice leads off the fourth inning with a home run to right field before Snyder robs Barra of a homer in front of the center field scoreboard. Black missed a pitch on an attempted squeeze play while Hughes at the plate, and Pafco got caught stealing home. So... Can't say your thing there in this case, Lucas. 
Uh, like, we got a tube land out of the deal, technically, so all is not lost here. Johnny Rutherford enters the game for the Dodgers in the eighth inning, which Mickey Mantle leads off with a triple over Snyder's head to get to the wall, and then he scores on a wild throw from Reese on the same play. Good day for Allie Reynolds. He allows only four hits, and the Yankees win this game 2-0, and the best chance that the Dodgers had on offense, the aforementioned Black missing the squeeze bunt. So, uh... Lucas, I know you love saying hitting pitchers forever, but how do you feel knowing that his missed bunt turned out to more or less be the difference in Game 4 and thus the difference between a 2-2 tie and a 3-1 series lead? Yeah, well, I mean, this is kind of the par for the course, and this is why even though I am pro hitting pitchers forever, I will eventually get over it once we hit 1973. We go to Game 5, 70,536 in attendance, including A's manager Jimmy Dykes. Gene Woodling is robbed of a game-tying home run to right by Andy Pafko with a leaping one-handed catch. And then Duke Snyder hits a two-run home run to right field. Johnny Mice hits his third home run as many games to right field, and that drove in three runs. And this game requires going beyond the regular nine innings. And what that means is that the umpires are conferring and they decide to have the lights turned on. Phil Rizzuto is barely thrown out on a throw from Cox at third to end the 10th inning. And then the 11th inning with two strikes, Snyder doubles off the right field bullpen railing to score at Cox, which gives him three hits and four RBIs for the game. And Johnny Mize almost hits another home run, but Carl Farrell robs him in right field, and that would have tied the game. Yogi Bear strikes out looking to end the game. The Dodgers win this by a score of 6-5. to five. Erskine gives up hits in only two of the 11 innings in which he pitches, and he was pitching on his fifth wedding anniversary, and he still did not allow base runner after Mize's home run, retiring the last 19 Yankee batters. And the Dodgers saving the day with their gloves as well. You could just say this was an all-around effort by the Dodgers to win this. I mean, sure, a 39-year-old reserve by the name of Johnny Mize almost beat them on his own. But this was as complete a game as, I would say, the Dodgers have played in any World Series game. We have tracked them into this point. It sure seems like it. The Dodgers opening the scoring on an Andy Pafko single in the... Second inning that drove home Jackie Robinson, who had walked to lead off the inning. The Dodgers tacking on three more in the fifth. A sacrifice fly by Pee Wee Reese precedes a Duke Snyder two-run homer out to right that scored Carl Erskine. He had reached, though, on a um, what was listed as a fielder's choice, an attempted sacrifice bunt. But Gil Hodges, who had walked to lead off the inning, was able to advance on the play. That four-run lead, however, does not hold up. You mentioned the Johnny Mize home run. That caps a five-run fifth for the Yankees. Briefly gave them the lead. The Dodgers tying it in the seventh with Duke Snyder singling off of Johnny Sane to bring home Billy Cox, who had singled with one out in the inning. And that was ultimately what sent us to extras prior to the uh, Duke Snyder game-winning double. So we go to game six, and Brooklyn is the site. But even though Brooklyn was quote-unquote, in the words of Arthur Daly, the borough of churches and mass baseball hysteria, 
very low attendance for Game 6. 30,037, which is well below the capacity at Ebbets Field. But the attendance rate in Merritt all was set and done. Los was pitching for Game 6. He gave the Yankees a lead in the seventh inning where he boxed Gene Woodling to second and failed to field a hard grounder up the middle, which scored Woodling. He would later say, I lost it in the sun. Also happening, Duke Snyder laying off the sixth inning with a home run off the right field screen, which is his third of the series. Yogi Bear leads off the seventh with his second home run of the series. More on that particular play that ended up scoring the winning run. And that happened with two outs. It was a Vic Raschi grounder, which caromed off of Lowe's legs into short right field. And Mickey Mantle leads off the eighth inning with the home run to the lower left field stands. Steyer hits his second home run of the game in his fourth of the series in the eighth inning. Reynolds relieves Ratchi after we get a double from George Shuba. And he ends up striking Campanella on a sweeping curve to end things. And the Yankees win this by a score of 3-2. to two. We have a winner-take-all coming up. As Arthur Daly wrote, the decision will probably come under floodlights at approximately the 27th inning just before midnight. Anything it would seem is possible in this unbelievably magnificent World Series. This really has been a fantastic series. You mentioned, too, in the top of the eighth in this one, Mickey Mantle homering off of Billy Lowe's. That is his first career World Series home run. I wonder if this is going to become a trend. We will see. But in Game 7, Casey Stengel had been forced to use his attendant Game 7 star Reynolds in Game 6, so he goes with Lopat. Black starts for the Dodgers. He was pitching on two days rest for the second consecutive time after pitching relief all year. And keep in mind, the Dodgers had a 19-6 regular season record against the lefties, and they won Game 3 when Lopat started. But both starters tire early. And Reynolds ends up relieving Lopat, the bases loaded, and nobody out in the fourth inning, and he works out of the jam. And this was part of a tough effort by the Yankees pitching staff to get through this game. Lopat, by the way, was relieved after Robinson Campanella had back-to-back bunt singles to load the bases, and then they got out of the jam. Woodling leads off the sixth inning with a home run over the right field screen. For the Dodgers, Cox doubles to the right center field wall and then scores on a single by Reese. Mantle hits a home run over the right field wall onto Bedford Avenue. And then Johnny Myers gets another hit. And they're probably thinking, man, I can't believe a 39-year-old is getting this many hits in a World Series. And Black is replaced by Preacher Rowe. Rashi enters for the Yankees in the seventh inning, but he's relieved by Bob Kuzava after loading the bases. Kuzava, you might remember, saved Game 6 of the 1951 World Series. Snyder ends up popping up to third. And then we get what is probably one of the most remarkable plays by an infielder in the history of the World Series. So... Jackie Robinson hits a pop-up to the first base side of the mound, which is nowhere near Collins at first. He had lost the ball in the sun, and Billy Martin saw the glare of sunlight in Collins' sunglasses, and he realized that he couldn't make the catch. So Martin rushes in from the deep part of his position to make the catch, and this was a huge moment that more or less decided... This game, the Dodgers were hitless for the whole rest of the game, and the Yankees win it by a score of four to two. Kuzava pitches the final two and two thirds innings, and the Yankees are winners of four straight World Series, fifteen World Series titles, 
And those four straight World Series wins matched Joe McCarthy. So the Yankees win what was, I would say, a tough game seven, at least up until Billy Martin made that incredible catch. Yeah, well, I mean, even with that, though, this was a tightly contested one that was tied 2-2 two to two after five innings. And then you have Mantle with his second home run of the series with one out in the sixth that made it 3-2. to two. Getting some insurance, Mantle again, RBI single in the top of the seventh, makes it that 4-2 to two game. You mentioned that pop-out. It's listed on baseball reference as uh, pop fly second base, pitchers left. So I'm going to have to rewatch the uh, play on that one. In that inning, the Dodgers actually left the bases loaded. Carl Ferrillo had walked to lead off the inning. A Billy Cox single advanced him to second. Then Pee Wee Reese walked to load him up. So you have bases loaded, only one out, with Rashi having been pitching. Kuzava comes in, gets the two pop-outs there in the seventh, uh, survives a throwing error with one out in the eighth that allowed Gil Hodges to reach, but that is sandwiched by swinging strikeouts of Campanella and Pafco before Carl Ferrillo flies out to deep left. But that ninth inning really not all that dramatic as Kuzava gets line out, ground out, fly out of Bobby Morgan, Billy Cox, and Pee Wee Reese, respectively, to seal a 15th World Series championship for the New York Yankees. And the Yankees win game seven despite committing four errors. Drink. It's been a while. I know. But as far as picking a potential World Series MVP for this, and I'm just going to say it's because we only have a few episodes left in which we can pick our own World Series MVP. You could make the case for a few players. I think Johnny Mai is only playing five of the seven games disqualifies it for consideration, although he did have a 1.567 OPS. Mickey Mantle with a slash line of 345, 406, 655, 1.061 OPS. He did have those two home runs in game six and seven, but only three RBIs. And you take a look at the two winning pitchers for the Yankees, Rashi and Reynolds. They combined to have a 4-1 record, both with ERAs under two. I think you could make a very convincing argument, and they both struck out 18 and Rashi walked eight, and Reynolds walked six. So pretty good strikeout-to-walk ratio. I think you can make a case for a co-MVP honors to be split between Rashi and Reynolds here. If you don't go with Johnny Mize, and you, you mentioned him only playing five of the seven games, but had 15 at-bats, so it's not like he had a super small sample size to accumulate those three home runs and that 400 average and the god-tier OPS and that. But honestly, this is how I was leaning as well, was going with the Rashi and Reynolds co-MVPs here because really the two of them combined to throw 37 and a third of the 64 innings that the Yankees required to throw in this series got as mentioned wins in the four games that they won only lost one of those you mentioned the strikeouts uh, 36 of the 49 for the series for the Yankees so I'm in yeah Rashi and Reynolds co-World Series MVPs in 1952. I feel like if Mickey Mantle had just gotten another home run in the World Series, we might have given him the award ourselves, but ultimately pitching was the name of the game. The Dodgers, with a horrible offensive series, four of their regulars hit under 200. Gil Hodges went 0 for 21. He's the first full-time player to go an entire seven-game series without a hit, but that didn't stop him from receiving encouraging applause from the fans in Brooklyn throughout the series. 
Yeah, here's what Whitey Ford wrote later on. This is the third time in six years that the Yankees beat the Dodgers in the series. Ford wrote, As a player, you couldn't help but get caught up in the rivalry. The enthusiasm was unbelievable, and it just carried over to the players. We especially loved it because we usually beat the Dodgers, so we got a great pleasure of kicking their ass and shutting up their fans. That is a fantastic part of this rivalry, and that this is great for baseball, really, too. Not just in New York, but I would say even nationally getting to show this rivalry on the biggest stage in defense of the Dodgers though who hit just 215 as a team for the entire series the Yankees only hit 216 so only a one point difference if you just go by batting average Uh, you look at OPS for the series the Dodgers with a 613 OPS the Yankees 694 so there you go so, I think that's about all we've got from 1952. Looking at 1953, guess what? These two teams are back again. So, I'll simply ask, is it time for a change or is it time for more of the same? Uh, Well, let me uh, see what the alarm clock plays and if this is another Groundhog Day scenario or not. Uh, tune in next week to find out. Okay, so for Lucas Mitchell, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to the 1952 edition of Then There Were Two, History of the World Series. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe too. We'll see you next time. <laughs>